We are uh, today in Romans chapter 9 still, and, and Lord willing, we will finish the chapter. And I have taken a great deal of time going through the chapter because, particularly the last number of verses we've been in, because they are critical verses to understand, and they are often misunderstood, I believe. And so, uh, I wanted us to take a, a good deal of time and think through them very carefully. And uh, uh, for that reason, I kind of slowed down. So actually, it was actually several weeks ago that I passed out the study sheet for this week. So I hope you still have that. Uh, But the the one I just passed out now is for the verses that we will look at next week, of course. Uh, But as I said, we're in chapter 9 and it's been a couple weeks since we were together. So let's read uh, some of these verses that we've looked at in the last couple weeks, last few weeks, and uh, then review a little bit and pick it up from there as we usually do. So let's let's pick it up in verse uh, 19, which is really kind of coming in the middle of Paul's argument of chapter 9. But we'll back up and think about some of these things some more. Uh, as we proceed. But he says in verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, though willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known to uh, the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he, also, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place or in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. It is the remnant that shall be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Okay, so when we were together uh, uh, the last time, two weeks ago, we looked at verses 
22 through 26 kind of as a whole. We had looked at some of those verses in the weeks before that. But, but uh, two weeks ago, we looked at 20 through, 22 through 26. And look back at those verses and dig back in the recesses of your memory and see if you can recall what are some of the things that we talked about about those verses 22 through 26. Well, one thing that struck me was we talked about being prepared for wrath. When you read this, you kind of assume it sounds like God prepared them for wrath. Uh-huh. Actually, can be that they prepared themselves for wrath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, it seems like Paul kind of goes out of his way to avoid implying that God prepared them for wrath because of the words that he used, the different words that he uses uh, in those two different places. And so, so what we see then is that these people who are prepared for wrath are ones who, because of their disobedience to God, have prepared themselves for God's wrath. And of course, he's speaking specifically here about the Jewish people because that's the issue of what he's discussing here. It applies, of course, to more than just the Jewish people, but, but here it's that's whom he's speaking about. What else? Okay. Okay. He's talking about vessels. And so one of the one of the the central issues of Romans nine and all the way through eleven is the idea of of God's uh, of our usefulness of God or how God uses us, our utility to God. And so he's speaking about vessels. And as we get on further, we get on to chapter 11. We're going to see how God is using one group of people to affect another group of people and vice versa. And so this idea of vessel is very important in understanding that he's talking about the idea of utility or our, or our purposes within salvation history. Okay? What else? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, good point. Okay. And what did we conclude there? Okay, okay. So the idea, the, uh, the, word, the word call is used in various ways in Scripture and even in the book of Romans it's used in different ways. But in this particular place, when he uses the word call, he's using it in the sense of naming or calling someone by a name, okay? So uh, when my children were born, I called each one of them a particular name. And uh, so that's the idea here. And, and, uh, and, and, and so who is he talking about God calling here? Okay, the Gentiles. Yeah, okay. That's the point he's getting to is he's going to talk about God calling the Gentiles and what did he call them? What did he name them? Okay, these people, the Gentiles, as Paul applies it here in Romans 9, actually as we look back in Hosea, he's talking about, uh, about the Jews, but Paul is applying it now to the Gentiles and what he's saying is God has called these Gentile peoples that were not his people before. He's calling them his people. Okay? And so we see this remarkable thing that God has done in which he has taken people who were not his people, who were not his children, 
and He is making them His children. He's making them His people. And as we observed, God, and this is Paul's argument, that God has this freedom. God is God. God is sovereign. And if God wants to call someone who is not His people, His people, God has the power and God has the freedom and God has the mercy to do that. And that's what Paul is arguing here, okay? And specifically, as I say, in Hosea it applies to the northern kingdom, to the people of Israel in the northern kingdom. And and God had said to them through Hosea and through the children that Hosea had and how he named the children, that God had said to the northern kingdom, you you know, you are no longer going to be my people and you're no longer going to be beloved because you have sinned, because you've rejected me, because you walked away from me. You're no longer going to be called my people. But then we get later in the story in Hosea and God says the people who were not my people will be called my people. And so it's a promise to Israel that although there will be a period of time when they will not be called the people of God, there's a time in the future when they once again will be called the people of God. But Paul's point is that if there's a group of people who are not God's people, God in His sovereign choice and His freedom as God and in His great mercy and love is free and powerful and merciful enough to call people who are not His people His people. And that's what He's done with us. It's just a remarkable thing that we were not God's people and God in His mercy and in His power and His love and, uh, and, and in His providence has called us His people. Okay, So those are some of the things that we've talked about. And what Paul is stressing here in this part of the chapter is he's been stressing the idea that, that God, if He wants to, He can include the Gentiles. And we know because of God's mercy, He does want to include the Gentiles. And that becomes even more clear as we go forward in, the, in this uh, discussion in 9 through 11. That God has chosen the Gentiles and He's brought them in. And, that, and, and to uh, some of Paul's uh, uh, Jewish opponents, this is a very offensive idea to them. They don't like this idea. They think that they're the people of God. But God says, if I want to include the Gentiles, that's my business. And that is my business. And that's what I'm doing. So he started out there in, uh, in verse uh, 22. He started out with his uh, question, with kind of his statement, what if God wanted to do this? And so it's kind of a what if statement. And he's, what he's saying to these Jews who are objecting to the idea of the Gentiles being included and being included. And he's saying, what if God wants to do that? What, what possible objection could you have to God wanting to show mercy to more people? Okay? And so that's kind of the gist of Paul's argument. So what we've discovered then is that God has chosen to include Gentiles within the people of God. That's really good news for most of us in here. I don't know if we have any Jews in here, but it's sure good news to me because I'm not a Jew. Okay, And it's great news to me that God has chosen to call people who were not His people His people. Okay, Well, but Paul's not done with his argument here. He's going to pick it up in verse 27 and he's going to be, begin to focus on the issue of Israel again. And to understand what Paul's doing here, we kind of need to go back in Romans 9 to early in the chapter and some things we talked about clear back in verses 6 and seven in the verses that follow. So flip back there in your Bible 
in Romans 9 to verses 6 and 7. And let's remember some of the things we talked about back there. Because what Paul is now doing in verse 27 is he's kind of concluding the argument that he began in verse 6. Okay? And in verse 6, he said, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named, etc. Okay. And then he goes on with his argument. And so what Paul is saying is they're not all Israel who are the descendants of Abraham. Remember, we talked all about this. And Paul begins an argument here. And you remember, we had our circles drawn up here on the board, right? We had our circles drawn and we had these kind of concentric circles uh, as we explained these verses. And, and what Paul is arguing... Well, let me just go ahead and draw them up here. He's an architect. Of course he can draw better circles. <laughs> he shakes his head. Ron shakes his head. Okay. Okay, God came to Abraham, changing the subject <laughs> from my artwork to the subject that had. When God came to Abraham and he told Abraham that God was going to bless him and he was going to give him descendants and, and that he was going to do all these fantastic, with, fantastic things with Abraham's descendants, right? And so God, out of all the people of the world, singled out by his promise to Abraham that his descendants, out of all the people of the world, were going to be specially blessed. Now, it's not because God only loved the descendants of Abraham. It's because God, as we see, God wanted to use the descendants of Abraham to declare his mercy to the whole world. So it wasn't because God only loved uh, Abraham's descendants, but his point to Abraham is, I'm going to do this through you in order that through you all the nations of the earth might be blessed, right? So God's purpose in singling out this group of people, these descendants of Abraham, was in order that all the ends of the earth might be blessed, okay? But, uh, so we have Abraham's descendants, but then there's a subsequent promise. And the subsequent promise pertains to Sarah. And the subsequent promise says what? <coughs> that the people included in this special group, the people of God, the children of God in the Old Testament, we're going to be defined not just by being Abraham's descendants, descendants, <laughs> descendants, but by being what? His descendants through what? Well, through Sarah. Through Sarah. Okay. So there's a promise concerning Sarah that it will be through her. Okay. So we have this circle is is constricted, if we can use that term, uh, and 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 it's constricted down to those. Those descendants of Abraham who come through Sarah. And who is that? She only has one child, right. And that's Isaac, okay? And so this circle was constricted. Remember, we've talked about this, but I want to show you where we're going, okay? So we have the circle constricted by the promise regarding Sarah, okay? But then it gets even more limited. How is that? By God's promise to whom? Uh, before Jacob. To Rebecca, okay? So basically, it's Isaac, okay? 
But, uh, so, well, first of all, we have the promise to Isaac that he's going to have a son. Same one he made to, okay. Uh, and then that promise gets narrowed down even more by what he says to Isaac's wife, Rebecca, when he says to her, two what are in your womb? Two nations are in your womb, okay? So his, his promise to Rebecca pertained to nations, not to individuals, okay? But he says there's two nations within your womb, and that narrows this down to the descendants through Jacob or Israel, okay? Now, as we said, Paul has said that not all, the, not all of Israel or Jacob... Not all of Israel are descendants. Uh, not, not all the descendants of Abraham are the true Israel. But there is a true Israel. And it's way down here. And it's just a, as we're going to see today, it's just this, this long, tiny little dot. This tiny little group of people. And this is what we call, what we've called throughout Romans, true Israel or spiritual Israel. Or as you'll see today, I like to call it righteous Israel. And we'll see why today, okay? But there's this little tiny dot. Now, in each case, as this circle got tighter and tighter, what was it that made the circle tighter? In each case, a promise. Okay. So in each case, there was a promise made and believed. And 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 in each case, the circle got smaller. But the one thing that Paul has not yet done in his argument is he's not yet explained this to us. He's not yet explained to us his statement in verse 7 where he says, they are, uh, or excuse me, verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are the descendants of Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac. He hasn't really finally concluded his argument. And I pointed this out to you as we kept going down here and we got down to this point where we limited it to Isaac, or excuse me, to Jacob rather than Esau. At that point, Paul stops. And he begins to elaborate on some things about God's freedom of choice and how God is free to do this. If He wants to do this, God can do this. Okay? And that God is just in doing this. And He, and he argues His way all the way through that. And... and and then he deals with this question that we dealt with two weeks ago about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Can God do that? Is it okay for God to do that? Well, yes, it's okay. But what Paul still hasn't answered is the question about this little tiny circle way down inside that's really only a tiny fragment of the whole big group of Abraham's descendants. And that's what he's going to begin to address now. And he calls it the remnant. Okay? And he's going to talk about this little circle of people, the remnant. And he's going to explain to us that there is such a remnant. There is this little group. And this is really true Israel. Okay. Now, I want to remember that Paul, when he talks about true Israel, he uses it in two different ways. In Galatians, when he talks about true Israel, he's talking about all believers He's basically talking about the church, Gentiles and Jews, okay? And he talks about that as true Israel. But in this case, in Romans chapter 9, he's not talking about the church. He's talking about that remnant of believers within Israel, within ethnic Israel, okay? 
and we, we established that early on in chapter 9, uh, that, that his discussion here is not, he's not talking about the church here, he's talking about the believers within ethnic Israel, okay? And within the descendants of Abraham. So this is what Paul is now talking about as he picks up uh, his discussion in verse 27 because he has just argued that the Gentiles are in on this deal now. Okay? The Gentiles are in. God's done this. He's called those who are not my people my people. But what we really have is we have a great reversal in salvation history. Because up until about the time of Paul, from the time of Abraham up to almost the time of Paul, what we have is we have God working in salvation history through what people? Through Israel. Through the Jews. So God is working through the Jews in salvation history to accomplish His purposes. So we have all the symbolism of the temple. We have the Christ according to the flesh. Uh, we have uh, the nations uh, observing God's blessing upon the nation of Israel and God's discipline upon the nation. So God has been working through Israel and Israel has been the focus, the central focus of God's salvation, salvation work in the world. But that has just been turned on its head. And now Israel is fading off the scene. And there's this massive, massive new movement of multitudes and multitudes, not a majority, but multitudes and multitudes of Gentiles who are now coming into and believing this gospel and being saved and are now the focus of what God is doing in the world and how God is accomplishing His salvation purposes. So everything has just been turned on its head and Paul is about to explain to us why that has happened. But first of all, he has to explain this little dot down here. How did we get from here to here? Well, in each successive step, the determining factor has always been a promise and a promise believed. A promise and a promise believed. And Paul's argument is going to be this little remnant down here is based on the same criteria. There's a promise believed. And it's the believers of the promise who get to be in that little circle. Okay? Again, speaking about ethnic believers within ethnic Israel. So Paul says in verse 27, he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us as a posterity, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Paul is saying, okay, God has brought in the Gentiles, and he quotes Hosea, but then he points out to us now that as far as ethnic Israel is concerned, it's only just a little remnant. And that word remnant implies just a tiny fraction, right? It's just a tiny fraction of the descendants of Abraham who are still included. If you only have a tiny fraction who are included in this promise, then what does that say about the rest of Israel? 
They're not. They're excluded. They're outside of this true Israel group. Okay? They're outside of it. They're in the same predicament as all the Gentiles used to be. Okay? They were ex- the Gentiles were kind of outside of God's, the focus of God's saving work. And not that he didn't want to save them, but he was working his plan. And the Gentile, but now it's been reversed and it's the Gentiles that are the focus and the vast majority of Jews have, have, have so walked uh, contrary to God and rejected his word that Israel as a whole could be defined as being no longer the people of God. That's what Hosea told us. Okay? So, Paul now is is wanting to establish for these opponents that he's dealing with, this kind of imaginary opponent that he's arguing with here, but they are real opponents of his and real opponents of the gospel. He's wanting to establish clearly for them that this condition of there only being a tiny remnant and the vast majority being outside of that promise, that that is not some new idea he's come up with. This is not Paul's thing. But this goes all the way back into the Old Testament and to the things that those great prophets of the Old, Old Testament prophesied. And so he cites Isaiah. And he uses two passages in Isaiah here. He says, I, or, or excuse me, uh, he actually uses uh, several passages from Isaiah. But the first one he uses is from Isaiah uh, chapter 10. And he says, uh, he says, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. This comes from Isaiah chapter 10. And, and what he's pointing out is that what God told Israel a long time ago is that this condition was going to happen. That there was going to be a situation in which most of Israel was going to be outside of the mercy of God and that there was only going to be a tiny remnant, a small portion. And this is not my new idea, says Paul. This is what Isaiah prophesied. This is what Isaiah said. Now, remember, we talked about Paul's persuasive technique when we talked about this circle, right? What was Paul's persuasive technique? What was the technique he was using in order to persuade his opponents? Okay, he started with the things that he agreed on. So at each point in this circle down to here, he's been pointing out to them things they agree on. Okay, we agree that it's just Abraham's descendants. But more than that, we agree that it's just his descendants through Sarah. And they're all going, the Jews are going, yeah, we agree with that. And we agree that it was just his descendants through Isaac. Yeah, we agree with that. And that, that, uh, and that through Rebekah, so, so only one of the nations in Rebecca's womb. And they're, and they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So they're agreeing all the way down to this point, And they're agreeing that it was determined by a promise believed. So they've been agreeing down to this point. Now, Paul is going to argue that so it is with this last little limiting circle down here. That it's by a promise believed. And it's at this point that Israel stumbles. It's at this point they get tripped up and they go, oh, oh, no, 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 no. We don't buy that. Okay. So he says there is a remnant. And he goes back and he cites Isaiah. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to get his Jewish listeners to go, 
Uh, okay, we're kind of uncomfortable now. You're making us uncomfortable, but we acknowledge this is what Isaiah said. Isaiah did say there was only going to be a tiny remnant. You see, he's arguing from the strength of their agreement to the point of their disagreement. And all along here they've agreed with him and now he's got to, and instead of just kind of spouting it off off of his own authority, he says, this is what Isaiah told you. And his opponents go, hmm, where's he going with this? Okay. So now we know that there is this remnant. And he says, just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now, Paul does an interesting thing here. He, he, he's he's uh, quoting here, uh, uh, again from Isaiah, from the first chapter of Isaiah here. And as Isaiah begins his prophecy in chapter 1, uh, he's speaking from the Lord and, and, and God is talking about this terrible situation that Israel is in at this time. How disobedient they've been, etc., etc., etc. And he gets down to verses 8 and 9 in chapter 1 of Isaiah and he says, unless the Lord had left us a posterity or some survivors, I think it translates it in, in my Bible, in Isaiah, some survivors, we would have been like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. What are Sodom and Gomorrah like? They're gone. They're history. They're out of here. Okay? We have no record uh, of, of any of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? They're gone. And he says that's the way Israel would be except God left them some survivors. Paul says, Paul uses the word, or it's translated in our Bibles, he left them uh, some uh, posterity, right? At least that's how it translates it in my Bible. If somebody has some other translations, what word does it use? Children. Pardon? Children. Children, okay. The seed. the seed, okay. Well, actually, that word seed is a good translation because that's the word that's used in the Greek. Greek words translated seed. And what's interesting is that's the same word that Paul used earlier in chapter 9 when he says in verse... Uh, in verse uh, 7, he says, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. That's the word seed. The same word that Paul, that's translated in your Bible's posterity in verse 28. Uh, so, they are not all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through, Abra- or through Isaac, your seed will be named. Okay? So, in that case, both the words are, are the same word that in verse 20, uh, 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 28, excuse me, verse 29, uh, he says, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a seed. So, Paul is clearly tying in this idea of this posterity, this remnant, being the spiritual Israel that he talked about in verses 6, 7, 8, etc. Okay? So, so, this little group, this remnant, this spiritual remnant, is the seed that God has left in Israel. That's all there is left. 
Now, that's not the end of the story as far as Israel is concerned. And when we get to chapter 11, we're going to find out it's not the end of the story as far as Israel is concerned. But the current condition at the time of Paul's writing this, and even the current condition today in the 21st century, the condition of Israel is that there's only just this tiny seed. But that among the Gentiles, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people are being brought in. And, and many, many people are being brought in every day into the kingdom from among the Gentiles. Some Jews are getting saved, but it's always still just a seed, just a little remnant. Okay? So there's been this great reversal. Before it was Israel and the Gentiles were kind of, Johnny comes lately, you know, they're down here. And then all of a sudden, everything's just been turned on its head. And Israel's down here and they look like they're left out pretty much. There's just a few, just a remnant. They look like they've been left out. It's not the end of the story, but it's the way it looks now. And up on top are the Gentiles. And God's doing, you know, great things all over the world among the Gentiles. He was at the day of Paul's writing and he's doing it today. All over the world among the Gentiles. How does this happen? What is it that brought about this great Sea change in redemptive history, in salvation history. What happened? Well, that's what Paul now sets out to explain. So he begins then in uh, verse 31, and he begins an argument that goes all the way through chapter 10. And it has to do with explaining how this sea change occurred. Why this sea change occurred in which the, the Jews are now kind of seemingly kind of pushed out and the Gentiles are brought in and, and now everything's going on with the Gentiles. How did that happen? Why did that happen? So he says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? How do we explain this? How do we, you know, why? Is kind of the big question that's out there, right? And that's what he wants us to understand. In other words, Paul is going to begin to do what he has not done yet in chapter 9. He's going to begin to explain to us what defines this little remnant seed. How does that get determined? How, and how does it get determined who are the people of God and who are not the people of God? How does that get determined? What we have seen throughout Romans 9 is that there is such a thing as a spiritual Israel, a small little remnant of Israel. We've seen that. We understand that. We understand that God has sovereignly made some kind of choice. And in that choice that God has made, some people who were not His people become called His people. But what we have not understood up to this point, what Paul has not explained to us up to this point, is how God makes that choice. How does God make that choice? Why are some people in and some people out? Is it some arbitrary decision on God's part where He just, you know, picks some and doesn't pick others? Or, or is there some... Is there some way we can understand how does God determine who He will call His people and whom He will not call His people? That's what He begins to explain now in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? Uh, excuse me, verse uh, 30. Uh, what shall we say then? It's interesting that in, in chapter 8, 
in verse 31. He starts with the same way. That's why I was saying. I have my Bible over there. And I kept looking down. It says exactly the same question in verse 31, chapter 8. But we're in chapter 9 and it's verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. So Paul now begins to explain to us how all this has happened and why all this has happened. And so there are the Gentiles over here and, and they were not the people of God, but God has now called them His people. And why did that happen? Well, he says, he, he makes this kind of analogy of a race. He talks about pursuing or running after something. And he uses two words here that are very important. He uses the word pursue and he uses the word attain. Okay, how it's translated in my Bible. The word pursue and attain. And what's significant about these words is that they're both very active words. Okay, they're both very they're an active voice, of course. But they're both very active words. And in fact, uh, the word attained has a prefix, kata, on the beginning of it, which even emphasizes the, the vigorousness, the vitality of the attaining. The, the, uh, uh, it, it emphasizes the activity of attaining. Okay? So it's kind of a strength and aggressiveness that's, uh, that's uh, uh, communicated there with the use of the prefix. Okay? So... So Paul is describing this situation and we have two runners in this race, if you will. Okay? We have Gentiles and we have Jews. And there is this goal at the end of the race. And the goal is what? Righteousness. That is the goal. Okay? And we have these two runners in the race. And on one hand, we have the Jews. And how are they characterized? in this race. What are they doing? What, what are they doing? Pursuing. Pursuing. Pursuing righteousness. Okay. So they're out there and they're really going after it. Okay. So you get a picture, you know, of a foot race and there's two runners out there. You know, there's the tortoise and the hare. Okay. But you got two of them out there and one's just really putting out. And that's the juice. On the other side, there's us. The Gentiles. What are we doing? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> okay, we're just kind of lollygagging along. You know? I'm I, uh, I'm not a very good athlete in anything. Okay, and uh, and but when I was in high school in Nebraska before we moved to a, a larger city in Colorado, but when I was in, when I was in high school, Nebraska was just a little tiny high school. And if you're a guy in a little tiny high school in rural uh, America, you go out for sports. And you don't go out for one. You go out for them all, right? Okay. So I had to do the football and I had to do the track and I had to do the basketball, you know. And I sat on the bench for all of them. Okay. But, but so, I'm, so I'm out there running track, but I'm six feet tall by this point, okay. And so my legs are very long. And so I would be out there in a relay race at practice because I never ran one in real track meet. But I'm out there running practice, okay, and I'm stretching my legs out as far as I can and running as fast as I can possibly make myself run. But to the people who are watching me, because I have long legs and my legs aren't moving as fast as the guy next to me, they think I'm not trying. 
says, Rick, why don't you run faster? I'm running as fast as I can run. Well, so to them, I looked like I really wasn't pursuing the goal. Now, in all honesty, I was. But this is what it looks like if you put a Jew against a Gentile in the days of Paul. Is you look at the Jew and he's out there and his legs are just moving 90 miles an hour. But you look at the Gentile and he's just kind of wandering around the track. Yeah. He's not even after the goal. He's not even following the rules. Exactly. And lo and behold, what happens? It says he attains righteousness. Now, of course, this isn't a competition where one loses and the other wins, but in this sense, he wins the prize. Just lollygagging. <laughs> just out there, just taking it easy, and he wins the prize. He attains righteousness. The Jew, on the other hand, is out there trying as hard as he can, and he doesn't get it. He misses out on the prize. What happened to this guy? What happened to the Jew who was running as hard as he could run, but he didn't reach the prize? But the Gentile, he he attained the prize. Now, that word attained is he seized it. He grabbed it. He laid hold of it. That's the idea. It's not this kind of casual passive thing that just happens to him. So it's not like he just was walking around there and, and all of a sudden he's righteous. But that he's, he's out there and he's not pursuing, but then something happened and he seized it. What happened? Is there a distinction between the righteousness and the law of righteousness? Uh, that's debatable among commentaries. But I would suggest that the difference is not significant as far as I'm concerned. Okay. But what happened? What happened to this Gentile? He was just out there and he wasn't really trying all that hard. And all of a sudden, he seizes righteousness. What happened? He heard the gospel. He heard the defining promise. And he believed it. He seized a hold of it. He grabbed it. This is what Paul was all about. Paul had a ministry to the Gentiles. He was traveling all over the world because Paul was excited that as he went out and as he preached to the Gentiles all over the Roman world, Gentiles were seizing the promise. They were grabbing hold. They weren't out there pursuing it. They were just out there living life. And here comes this fanatic from... from uh, from uh, this fanatic Jew from Jerusalem and he comes into their city and he stands out there on Mars Hill or whatever and he starts preaching. Uh, Christine and I were talking about Mars Hill. We both have, have had the opportunity to stand at the big rock up in the middle of, of Athens, Greece. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but you, you climb up these rock stairs and you get up on top and you can see around and the only thing higher than it is the Acropolis, which is a few hundred yards away. But it's this hill and I stood up there you know, this many years ago to me, I stood up there and I just thought about Paul reasoning there with the Greeks and how some of them believed. They seized it. They'd never heard it before. They never sought it. They weren't even trying for it. And Paul comes up there and stands on that rock and tells them about Christ and they seize it. They lay hold of it by faith. And they attained righteousness. 
But we have the Jew. And he's over here and he's just running for all he's worth. But something happened that he didn't make it. What happened? We know what happened to the Gentile that he did. What happened to the Jew that he didn't? He stumbled. He fell. We've all seen that, right? Watching track meets, you know, the Olympics or whatever. You know, watch a, watch a track meet and we've probably all seen it. Somebody's out there and they're really doing well and they're in the head of the race or they're in the leading group and, and then all of a sudden something happens and they fall. And they don't get the prize. Pardon? Take what? Oh yeah, they take more with them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's usually, usually a chain of it. So, they stumbled. What did they stumble over? What did they... Okay, you're getting ahead of me. What did they, what did they stumble over? What did they stumble over? What did he say they stumbled over? It tells them. It tells us. They stumbled over the... Stumbling stone. <laughs> There's a stone out there that is called the stumbling stone. And that stumbling stone is... Christ. Okay? We know that stumbling stone is Christ. Okay? Jesus claimed to be that stone which the builders have rejected. Okay? And 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 we get into Peter and he talks about how that how that that stone which the builders rejected was the stumbling stone. It was the stone which Israel rejected. Okay. Now you'll notice Paul says here uh in uh in uh, verse 32, he says, why, why did they not attain it? He says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I want to, I want to show you what Paul does. Because Paul actually takes two quotations from Isaiah and he conflates them together to make his argument here. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 28. Uh, and stick your finger in Isaiah 28. Uh, and then go back to Isaiah chapter 8 and stick your finger in Isaiah chapter 8. And Paul begins with Isaiah 28.16 where Isaiah says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A tested stone. A costly cornerstone for the foundation. Firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now turn over to verse chapter 8 and look at verse 14. He says, Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the house of Israel, but to both of the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so when Paul says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. When he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, he's quoting chapter 28. But when he says, Of stumbling and a rock of offense, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8. 
And when he says, but whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, he's back in chapter 28 again. So he takes the idea of the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense and he inserts it into the middle of the quotation from Isaiah 28. Now, why does he do that? Well, because what Paul is trying to emphasize, first of all, is that as far as Israel is concerned, this stone, which Isaiah describes in 28 as a precious cornerstone, Paul leaves that part out. Because for Israel, it's not a precious cornerstone. It's a rock of stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And this is why all the rest of Israel has missed out. Because this stone of stumbling is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is to Israel a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking how in our popular culture today, Jesus is not a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense, is He? Most people think about Jesus. What do they think? Pardon? Good teacher. Nice guy. What did he teach? Like what? What was, this, what was the one thing Jesus taught as far as the world is concerned? Love everybody. Love everybody. You know? Can you quarrel with that? Can you quarrel with the fact that Jesus was a good guy? He was a good teacher? And he taught us to love one another? I can't quarrel with that. But if that's as far as we go, we've missed some pretty important stuff, right? In our popular culture today, Jesus is not a controversial figure. He's not a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In the popular mind, Jesus is just this good teacher who taught us all to love one another. He may have been a prophet. Some of them will even say he was God. But that is not the Christ of Scripture. The Christ of Scripture is the Christ who said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. He is the Christ who said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He is the Christ who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus was absolutely, totally exclusive. This is not the Jesus of popular opinion. He is, in fact, when He is properly preached from Scripture, still a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, when Paul uses that word there, when he says He's a rock of offense... He's using the same word that he used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to describe the preaching of the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he told us that the preaching of the cross was an offense. And the word there in the Greek is the word scandalon, from which we get scandal. The preaching of the cross is a scandal. 
And when you understand what crucifixion represented in the first century, it, we, under, we come to understand how absolutely repulsive, disgusting, not only was the act of crucifixion, but the victims of crucifixion were viewed that way. They were the dregs of society. They were slaves. They were criminals. They were despicable. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. He was too high up the social ladder. It was only the people at the bottom, the despicable, the dirty, the filthy, the hated. Those were the ones who were crucified. And so the preaching of the cross is a scandal because we go out there and we say, our God was crucified. Bow down and worship Him. That's a scandal. But in the Christian message, if the cross is a scandal, Christ is more so. That's what Paul says. He says he is an offense. He is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Christ is, when properly preached, a scandal. He is to the natural man everything that is repulsive and obnoxious. He's exclusive. He's demanding. He says, he says gross stuff like you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Over and over and over again in the Gospel stories, Jesus says things that just absolutely infuriate people and disgust them. And then Paul says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and we'll finish over there. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is using those same verses. Uh, in verse 6, he says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for those who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. What's it mean to be disobedient to the Word? means you don't believe it. And to this doom they were appointed. And so Peter, using these same verses in Isaiah that Paul uses, helps us to understand how this stone, which for the Jews became a rock of stumbling, is instead for some other people a precious stone, a tested stone, a cornerstone. What makes the difference? Why is this stone for one a precious stone and for another a stone of stumbling? What makes the difference? Belief. Belief in the stone. That's the difference. And so the Gentiles believed in the stone. And to them and to us, it has become a precious stone unto you who believe. He is precious. But to those who do not believe, 
it becomes a stumbling stone. And in their vigorous pursuit for righteousness, they stumble over the stumbling stone. They stumble over the one thing that would make them righteous. They fail to believe in the stumbling stone. And so they lose out. And so what Paul is telling us here is that this little defining, this little circle down here, this little remnant, how is it defined? It's defined by that few, those few Jews who at his point in history and up till now, those few Jews who have believed in the stumbling stone. They believe the promise of the stumbling stone. And Paul reminds us what Isaiah tells us and Peter reminds us as well. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Have you ever been disappointed? Has, ever, has anybody ever promised you anything and not come across? I was thinking of modern marketing techniques. You know, there's all these modern marketing techniques and people are always pushing their products and say, you know, do, you know, this will change your life. You know, do this or do this or buy this product or eat this food or whatever and it will change your life. And you buy into it, right? You buy into it and nothing happens. And what do you feel? Well, you're disappointed, right? You bought that fancy new car and you found out it didn't make life any better for you. It just added more debt to your pile, right? Or, you know, or, you know, or you, you, you bought that, you know, that super thing that whatever was supposed to make you, supposed to you know, make your hair grow or whatever, you know, to make my hair grow and turn black again, you know, and I put it on and what happened? All my hair fell out, you know, and I was disappointed. But the Greek word there that's translated disappointment and translation has another sense to it as well. You're not only disappointed, you're what? When you really invested in something, you've really bought into somebody's spiel and it hasn't turned out the way it was promised, you feel ashamed. My friends, nobody who believes in the stumbling stone will ever be ashamed. Will never be ashamed. You know, the world laughs at it now. They mock at us now. They say, how can you be so stupid? But my friends, whoever believes in Him will never be disappointed, will never be ashamed, will never be dishonored. The stumbling stone is to us a precious cornerstone. Okay? Pick it up in chapter 10 next week.